off to a good start. The gyms are full and people are trying to hold off on all of that alcohol as part of all of those New Year's resolutions. We originally planned on getting this episode out to you in time for your New Year's Eve parties, but whoops, we missed that boat. Plus, it ended up being pretty heavy on the science side, and we weren't sure if these killer conversation topics would help you all get laid that night or not. Which, of course, may or may not be your goal at a New Year's Eve party, but we thought the majority of all of you were aiming for that end goal, and we just didn't want to mess it up for any of you. Now, of course, all of that being said, I adore science and would totally be infatuated with anyone who dropped on me some of the science knowledge that we'll go over in this episode. Case in point... I've been totally listening to this playlist that the team over at Spotify put together called Smart is the New Sexy, with the tagline, Intelligence is always in style. I mean, here, here to that. I'll put a link up on our website, so should you want to get down with some of my current favorites, like Alt J, Marion Hill, or Chet Faker, well, you know where to find it. So recently I came across this story about a new version of the lava lamp. It's Lava Lamp 2.0. Maybe you had one in college, right below your Bob Marley poster, or maybe you had one when you were younger, sans Bob Marley. Regardless, you know what it is, and it's no longer cool. I was about to say that they probably aren't even manufactured anymore, and the only lava lamps you can find are either at garage sales or as props and say, that 70s show. But thankfully there's Amazon to check these things, and yep, you can still buy a brand new one from Lava Light, L-I-T-E, for around $13. Yeah, but still, not cool. However, there is a new version! A more natural one, so to speak. It's a desktop jellyfish aquarium brought to you by the Florida-based company Jellyfish Art. Now, if it were me, I'd try to name that company something a little sexier than Jellyfish Art. After all, the Jellyfish Aquarium is endorsed by Vanilla Ice. Right? Right. Sexy. Yes. Um, maybe we'll brainstorm some new company names at the end of the story, but maybe we won't. We'll see. So about this new lava lamp with the jellies, it's small enough for a desktop and holds moon jellyfish, which apparently don't sting. They have the same stinging cells as other jellyfish, but it doesn't affect people. The tank has a series of LED lights that change colors, And because the jellyfish are translucent, they pick up the colors of the lights. You can have magenta, indigo, or emerald jellyfish. The way it works is that you get the tank, you set it up, and then you get back online to redeem your jellyfish and the jelly food that should arrive within 24 hours. The jellies are shipped via FedEx with a, and I quote, arrive alive guarantee. Which means that if your jellyfish arrive dead or die within 30 days, they will ship you new living jellyfish. Apparently, sometimes during the shipment, the jellyfish can get torn or arrive with holes in their the umbrella part. But you just feed them a little bit more than usual, and they can heal themselves. Now, the food you spoon into the tank is powdered planktonic eggs. 
But you can supplement that food with baby brine shrimp that you have to hatch with a specially purchased baby brine shrimp hatching machine. Hatching little baby brine shrimps looks a little involved on their website. I found the project on Kickstarter, which at the time, the project had been overfunded to a tune of 599384 or so. Um, so it looks like people are gung-ho about getting this project up and running. I've heard the Jellyfish Aquarium described as mesmerizing and peaceful and relaxing. Just what you want in jellyfish, not super vicious stinging things, right? So, if these moon jellyfish don't sting people, why and how do other jellyfish sting? And it's super cool how these guys do it. I always thought it was some sort of mucus coating the outside of the tentacles, and when they brushed up against you, the mucus reacted with your skin and created a burning sensation. Yeah, that's what I thought, and of course you know I'm going to say, nope, that's not it. That's totally not how it works. Essentially, jellyfish sting by shooting out these microscopic hypodermic needles which are found all over their tentacles. The needles pierce your skin and then a venom is injected. And that's how it's done. Also, contrary to popular opinion, if you are stung by jellyfish, it is not wise to pee on that wound in order to stop the pain. Apparently, by pouring fresh water, and urine, which I've learned is considered fresh water, it can alter the chemical composition of the venom and possibly causing more venom to be released or reactivated. So don't pee on it. Removing any tentacles from your skin and rinsing the affected area with salt water or vinegar is the best way to ease the pain, according to the experts. I found this YouTube video that shows this magic in slow motion. The guy's YouTube channel is called Smarter Every Day. For the jellyfish video, he speaks with a toxicologist at this university in Australia where they pull out all of their fastest cameras to capture the stinging in action. It's pretty cool. The Smarter Every Day guys also made a video about the physics of a flipping cat, how does a cat always land on its feet, and beatboxing in slow-mo. They're pretty entertaining. We put a link up to our favorite videos on our website under the tab Articles, should you want to take a look, which I definitely recommend. So over the holidays, along with millions of other folks, we went to go see Star Wars, The Force Awakens, helping Disney to pull in the reported $153.5 million it grossed in the United States alone. And as a child of the 80s, I got into the series, but I definitely didn't get into it hardcore. Well, alright, that might be overstating it, even at that. I wasn't familiar with the storyline enough to even recognize the iconic spaceship that they resurrect in The Force Awakens. You know, the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, I had no clue, but anyway, my man and I liked the film, and on New Year's Day, feeling less than fabulous, we hung out on the couch all day and watched the previous six films. So after viewing all the films, I feel like I've drank the Kool-Aid and am now totally invested. So I have a theory, a theory that has a few holes, mind you, but I have this theory that both Star Wars and the super cool things that have happened in science this past year have renewed our collective interest in both space and space exploration. 
You know, we've got SpaceX, Elon Musk, the Virgin Atlantic's commercial space line called Virgin Galactic, and good old NASA. It seemed like there was a period of time after the golden age of NASA in the 60s that saw more and more budget cuts for NASA funding, and folks were critical of the space program as being incredibly expensive, and that the focus should be more about how to improve life here on Earth. Totally fair points. A quick side note, I read this book by Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code, called Deception Point, that was all about NASA trying to resuscitate its image and therefore its funding source by planting false evidence of alien life in our polar ice cap. Totally entertaining book, hopefully I did not kill it for anybody who actually wants to read it down the road, but anyway... It made me think of that book when I first heard that NASA had found evidence of flowing water on Mars in 2015 and the ramifications of what that discovery means. The Curiosity rover found these dark streaks in a crater called the Gale Crater. Um, So there's a time-lapse video floating around the internet that shows these dark trails slowly moving down the face of the mountain. There's no running water here, but it's enough moisture to significantly darken the surface and, of course, to flow, albeit flow very slowly. The thing is, it's ridiculously cold on Mars, and in the past, scientists have found large deposits of ice on the planet, which suggests that there used to be vast oceans. However, those are gone for the most part, and what we have now is a cold, arid planet with spots of solid ice. So the cool thing is that this moisture is fluid enough to move. The moisture is incredibly salty, though. So in fact, there's so much salt in this water to lower the freezing point to negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit. So the high concentration of salt also means that the salt can potentially absorb moisture from the atmosphere and bulk up the amount of water found. This concept can be seen in action at the Don Juan Pond in Antarctica, a small lake that never freezes because of its high concentration of salt, about 40%. It stays about the same depth year-round, which is ankle-deep, technically a lake that's ankle-deep, But it stays that same depth through the salt absorbing moisture from the atmosphere and occasional runoff from nearby glaciers. The thing about finding this mess on Mars is that while NASA has always said, follow the water when it comes to looking for life on other planets, and they'll certainly check for it in the Gale Crater, but the more immediate reason why this finding is notable is because it increases our chances for supporting astronaut missions on Mars. So theoretically, if there was water on Mars, we could build a greenhouse, tap into the water, and grow crops. So we'd be a step closer to inhabiting other planets. It kind of reminds me of that recent movie, The Martian, but, you know, with more people and hopefully not in this, like, dire life or death situation. It's a pretty cool finding, that fluid water on Mars. There are plans in development to send another rover to Mars in 2020 that would specifically test how easily astronauts can live on the red planet. So recently I was talking to a friend about how much I had gotten into Star Wars. As another child of the 80s, this male friend was all into the Star Wars. He's done his research on this series and suggested that I check out Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. 
The hero's journey, also known as the monomyth, is from a book written in 1949 called The Hero with a Thousand Faces by American mythology scholar Joseph Campbell. Campbell studied myths and fairy tales throughout history and found that they all follow more or less the same framework. Some myths or stories will focus on one section of the 17-part structure or possibly reorder them so your story doesn't turn stale. And rarely do they follow the steps to a T. But in a nutshell, the hero's journey goes a little something like this. The hero starts out in a mundane, rather boring world and is thrust on an adventure into a fantastical world. Our hero might not want any part of this, so maybe a mentor is introduced to help our protagonist along. Epic forces are encountered, enemies to be faced and vanquished, and in the end, our hero returns home transformed, maybe with a nugget of wisdom to share with the others. When I was digging into all of this, it seemed to me that the key points here are that the hero must be transformed or changed in some way, and that they must return home in order to share this newly acquired knowledge. This format applies to stories about Greek god Prometheus, Buddha, Jesus, and the Egyptian god Osiris. George Lucas studied the hero with a thousand faces when he was writing Star Wars and followed the structure in order to create a modern-day myth, so that was his game plan. Other stories, though, that follow this construct, this hero's journey, are, say, Moby Dick, Jane Eyre, The Hunger Games, The Matrix, Harry Potter, or The Wizard of Oz. In fact, I found an internal memo from 1985 written by Christopher Vogler, who is a producer and writer. So this internal memo was circulated at Disney Studios that illustrate the hero's journey, and you can see that most Disney movies use it to write their more successful films, such as The Lion King, Finding Nemo, and Beauty and the Beast. But then there's also Up, Lilo and Stitch, Inside Out, You know, basically most kids' films. Now, Joseph Campbell became well-known for the phrase, follow your bliss, which is a catchphrase that my mom has become really fond of saying recently. I had no clue where she got it from. I assumed it was from the same book that she got manifest from. You know, Rachel, you you just have to manifest it. Now, I like elaboration and details, you know? Like, what the hell does that mean? Anyway, so follow your bliss is explained by Joseph Campbell as find out what makes the time pass in a flash and do that because whatever that is is what gets you excited and therefore is what you're passionate about. Because when you're building your career or business from the ground up, there will be rough times and you just have to slog through that And if you can't find some iota of passion with which to approach the project, it'll just be a chore, and it'll epically suck. So, I'll leave you with one more quote from Campbell from a commencement speech at Sarah Lawrence. Quote, Don't do what your parents want you to do, as their main objective is to keep you safe. Forging your own path, it's risky and will not necessarily keep you safe. End quote. So yeah, do what you're passionate about and forge your own path.
This is what I've learned this week from Jellyfish Star Wars. Again, thanks for joining us this week. And of course, you can find links to all of the articles and topics we mentioned in this episode at our website under articles, thepreptalk.com. Also, if there are any super cool stories that you come across um, you think might be good ideas for future episodes, feel free to send it to us at preptalkweekend at gmail.com. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.